Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash voices in my head. That's audibletrial.com slash voices in my head. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. That's audibletrial.com slash voices in my head. Give it a try today. Welcome to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of me, Rick Lee James. I'm a recording artist, a singer, songwriter, an author, a worship leader, and an ordained minister in the Church of the Nazarene. The Voices in My Head podcast is your source for discussions on music, literature, movies, pop culture, theology, and more. Now sit back, relax, and listen to the latest episode of the Voices in My Head podcast. And don't forget to let the voices in your head be heard by following me on Twitter at Rick Lee James and sharing your thoughts about today's show. Welcome back to Voices in My Head. As always, I am your host, Rick Lee James, and I am doing another live broadcast, this time from Dayton, Ohio, once again. Uh, our last episode was just about a mile and a half from where I'm sitting now at the First Lutheran Church. I literally came over straight from the last podcast to do a new podcast with J.R. Foresteros. J.R., welcome back to the Voices in My Head podcast. Thanks, Rick. It's really good to be back. I'm really excited. Well, and this is uh, the second time that we've done this on the show, I think. And both times, ironically enough, we have been like face-to-face. And usually my guests are on Skype or whatever. And you came all the way from Texas just to be on the show. That's right. It's a huge honor, and I had to make the trip. (laughs) Now, it worked out some timing. You were in the area, and so this is... Uh, a little bit off the cuff and sort of last minute, but I just finished your new book, which doesn't even release yet. It comes out in November. What was the date again? November 7th. November 7th from InterVarsity Press, and it's called Empathy for the Devil. And I loved it. I, in spite of the fact that you're now a Satanist, I don't know how you made <laughs> that turn, but no. <laughs> surprise twist at the end of the book. Yeah, surprise twist. That's what it's all about. Um, so, anyway, it, it's a really good read. Um, I was telling you before we started that. I was home with my son who was sick for a few days, and so it it was the perfect time to kind of just, what am I doing other than sitting here blowing his nose for him? Um, I can sit and read your book, and so it was great to be able to have that in advance. So we're going to talk a little bit about your book. We're going to talk a lot about your book today, actually. Great. <laughs> um, so how amazing is it, though? You're you're going to be a published author with InterVarsity Press. Yeah, you know, this just... is my first book. I've had a couple of, like, essays here and there published in a couple of different places, but it's it's been a lifelong goal of mine to be a published author. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't have anything against uh, self-publishing. I have a number of friends who do that. I love self-published books, but there was something about, like, I really wanted to get the traditional, yeah. you know, the traditional route, and uh, yeah, this book, uh, it, with InterVarsity Press, which they're, like, I, I tell people, most of the Christian books that I read are InterVarsity books. Like, I just, their stable of authors is unbelievable, yeah. and to be now counted as in that, yeah. you know, they're at the bottom of those numbers, but still, yeah. like, it's it's an wow. incredible honor. They're an amazing publishing house. Well, so. and you and you have worked very hard, and you there are a few uh, people that I know of online that are probably as disciplined as you in your writing, and I think that, I, think so. I mean, it, it's, um, people, it doesn't just happen that you get uh, something like this. this is a, it really is a huge honor, and uh, if any of you have followed Jr., you know that he's always blogging. He's always, you know, I, I get the weekly email from you with different picks and um, things that are on your heart. I mean, I, I can remember even back when you were here 
in the Dayton area. And back at Lent, you were doing a daily, like, um, devotional, really, to go through the season of Lent. And then you did one, I think, at Advent time after that. So you were just constantly, like, hitting it and doing work constantly. And you're sharpening that muscle all the time. So, first of all, just congratulations, because it, it doesn't happen by accident. You have to have some game, you know, when it comes to it. It, and, it is and, really interesting, people, because as soon as you get a book contract, you, you find out all of the people that you know that secretly wanted to be writers. They yeah. all come out, and they're like, oh, and every single one of them says, well, how did you do this? And I'm yeah. like, well, the, the shortest version is I wrote a book proposal and someone <laughs> wanted it. The long version is, like, back in 1999, I started a blog, right. and <laughs> you know, I've been writing, writing, writing. Right. I've written hundreds of thousands, if not millions of words yeah. that I never got paid for at all right you know and so you're right i mean it's it, it is really about if you want to be a writer you got to read a lot and write a lot yeah. and that's the trick well and you have done the work so uh, that's a, a huge congratulations thank on you because i know I, I know as a songwriter and even you know and i i self-published a book and even that's hard to do and i i just i know on some level what it takes to go in there and actually finally get a publisher to buy into what you're doing and, and that's a lot of work and it's well deserved i i was able to get through the book and i really you read it so it. fast well and and as i told you it's partly because of siri because it has this cool <laughs> function um i took it to the gym with me in the morning i turned it on voiceover and i just started so it was almost like having a, a book on cassette or on cd or yeah. whatever they do now audiobook audible my sponsor is audible I audible. <laughs> like, why am i thinking cassette I, i'm so old um but it was almost like an audible book read by Siri, and, it's, and as I told you, it's like it's fun to hear her try to say words like like instead of Yahoo, as I was taught in college, it's, it's Jehu or whoever. You know, like it's <laughs> oh, poor to Siri. So, um, so I did get through it pretty quick, but only because again I was homesick and I was able to kind of listen through stuff. Um, but there'll be parts that I need to. I'm, I'm going to use this as a resource as something to go back again because you do so many really good character studies. And there's a lot of creativity in the way that you write. It's it's a um, it's sort of a mix between nonfiction and fiction. It's almost like um, creative narratives about uh, these sort of villains in scripture. Um, and so it's not like a, a strict like telling of here's who they are. But you're doing some real imaginative work about let me set up the kind of person this was and the background that they came from and. Um, and as it says in your book, I'm just going to read a little bit from the front here. It says, the goal of this project is to understand, not to exonerate. Uh, empathy does not insist we condone the beliefs or behaviors of other people, but only that we see the world from their perspective, which is why the book is called Empathy for the Devil, which is an awesome title. Um, so you've done that with these characters, and I think in uh, the, sort of the climate that we're in right now, I think more importantly than ever, this whole idea of being uh, empathetic towards people that we maybe don't understand, don't agree with, um, certainly many times don't condone, but at least it helps us to approach them in that way. So tell us first of all, because you just told me a little scoop before we started recording about this, that uh, even though women play prominently in this book now, the original idea didn't have women in it necessarily. Yeah, so you know, as you said, I, for, so I have seven biblical villains that I choose. And each one gets two chapters. There's a, a fictionalized retelling of their big moment, mm -hmm. but it's from their perspective. So they're the protagonists, whereas in Scripture, all of these characters are the antagonists, right? They're the, Cain is the, the bad one that killed his brother. Sure. And Delilah is the femme fatale that, you know, uh, took down God's champion, and right. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I kind of spin the story around and say, well, what did it look like through their eyes? 
And so that just writing that fiction, I had never really written fiction before I approached this project. Mm-hmm. And, and so I was pretty nervous because I read a lot of fiction and I've read bad fiction and, and I know it's, it's, it's actually super easy to write bad fiction. It's really hard to write good fiction. So I was, I was, I wanted, I thought for the book to work, I needed to be able to pull off these fictional narratives because I can tell you all day long a list of facts, but that doesn't engage your emotions. And I think to really to be empathetic with someone, you need to be able to feel the things they feel and see the, the way they see. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, uh, I was pretty anxious. So when I was putting together my original list of seven villains, I didn't include any women because uh, the one thing I know that female readers are pretty irritated about consistently is how men write women in their fiction. Mm. They, they don't write them as believably feeling female. Authentically female, and not not that they can't, but just that, that tends not to be the case. Sure. And uh, and so I just I thought you know because I'm already taking a big risk writing um, fiction. Period. I don't want to like compound my problems and, and then try to. I felt like writing females was maybe biting off more than I could chew. Sure. So I I put together my book proposal. I I had my list of seven villains. And then when IVP wanted it, they said, is this a men's ministry book? And I said, it is not. It's meant for everyone. (laughs) They said, well, we'd like to see female villains in there also. And I said, I will literally do (laughs) whatever you want. Just publish my book. Uh, So I I cut three of the male villains and replaced them with three female villains. Mm. Uh, And then I just decided I was going to have to work extra hard to make sure that I... So I actually, they were the first three villains uh, fiction that I wrote Mm. was Delilah, Jezebel, and Herodias. And then I sent them to female beta readers. And I said, can you just like be as mean as possible? Yeah. You know, um, with how, how these feel as women. Uh, so yeah, I kind of tried to cover my bases there and make sure that I was, you know, running it by a number of women. So yeah, well, that's, that's the best thing to do is to get people who will be critical of what you do. But you know what? Taking those three out though, now you're set up for the sequel. That's right. Empathy for the devil too. (laughs) We, you know, I'm ready if if people like it. But it's hard to like, you know, this book kind of crescendos at the end with the, the the big guy himself. Well, and right before him with Judas, right? Like honestly, honestly, if IVP had signed me to a two book deal, I would have not done Judas in this one. Right, oh, I would have ended sure. with Satan, and right. then at least you have the number two worst guy right, exactly. for the second book. Yeah, so in- inevitably, if there is an empathy for the devil too, like it will not be as yeah, one dramatic. Minute, you could have had Darth Vader and then the Emperor or whoever. Right, exactly. Know, right. Yeah. So sorry, yeah. everyone. But you, you really do, and, and I, I put a review on on Goodreads, and I I said, and I mean this honestly, the book starts out strong, and then with each chapter, I just feel like it gets better. You know, oh, thank like, you. with each one. Um, so, so we kind of start in in the book, and we're, we're certainly not going to go through every single character today, but we'll take some time to just kind of examine some of them. Uh, and you start with, uh, if memory serves, I don't think there was anything prior to this, but Cain. Uh, right, was, I had yeah, an introductory yeah, chapter. Because yeah, right, but yeah, the Cain's the first one. Um, and so Cain, because I was trying to think, like, is there anybody? I'm tired. And I'm like, is there right. anything, any other villain in scripture before Cain other than, you know, like the flood? Or, right, know, right. right. Um, so Cain is an interesting character that we come to. And I really like how you bring this out that ministers, uh, those of us who at times preach, you preach a lot more than I do. But if, if we teach Sunday school, if we do anything that has to do with taking the Bible, let's do a study and tell people about what we've studied. We're so quick to want to say why Cain did what he did, you know, or why did Cain kill Abel? And usually the explanation is, well, his offering just wasn't as good or whatever. And I really like how you bring out in your book, 
we don't know that. Like, we don't have a reason other than God just was pleased with one and he wasn't with the other. And maybe talk to us just a little bit about Cain and maybe something that you found intriguing about him that maybe you didn't know before or maybe even just in your creative imagination something that you felt like you needed to bring out about this character um so a couple things uh one i got a lot of my like the, i guess the seed of what became my take on kane is from miroslav wolf his book exclusion and embrace um where he really talks about kane a lot and his kind of reading of kane all of the identity language that i use in the book really came from that um yeah it struck me that Cain didn't seem to know why he had been rejected or why his offering had been rejected, right? Yeah, right. Uh, which is strange because you would think that if it was as clear cut as, and, and, and again, scripture does say Abel brought the first fruits of his flocks mm-hmm. while Cain only brought some of his grain. So, I mean, like, right. that's why we have this idea in our heads that that's why God did it. Sure. But God never says that. Yeah. And Cain seems pretty confused about why he's been rejected. So, I mean, it doesn't, it, it's not as cut and dry to the people in the story. I've heard people say God likes meat, not vegetables. So, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, so there's, there were a couple of things that really struck me as I was trying to prepare the story. One was that um, God says to Cain, if you do right, you will be accepted. Which seems to indicate that Cain, Cain's offering had been rejected, but Cain himself had not been rejected. Mm. And certainly Cain could not distinguish between those two things uh, in the story. You know, that's why he yeah. gets angry. Um, another thing that, because I like to play with family dynamics with characters, and that's a big part of the Cain yeah. story, is that for all of Cain's life, he's been the favorite son, the strong one. I mean, his name means strength. Abel's name means vapor or mist or like dew. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought about what it means that, you know, Cain becomes a farmer just like Adam. Like that was Adam's vocation was to till and keep the earth. Right. And so the oldest son follows in his father's footsteps. But what would it do to the fact that for Adam, this vocation that he had been given from God was now a curse for him. You know, his his curse was now the ground will produce thorns and thistles and all of that. And so for Adam, every time he works the earth, he's reminded of his curse. And, uh, and apparently how much harder it had become for him. Yeah. Whereas Cain would only know the joy of working in the field with his father. Mm-hmm. But, but at what point did he realize that his father, like this means something different and more painful for his father than it means for him and so i have this part in the story where cain remembers adam looking out kind of wistfully at abel playing with the the animals Mm -hmm. and cain realizes that like his father doesn't want to be in the field Mm. you know and like what like like what would that do and i mean as a sibling i understand sibling rivalry (laughs) very well right yeah Um, i I love the story about you punching your brother that's a spoiler you can read later so yeah i mean those are some interesting insights about like again just trying to imagine the whole lives of these characters more than just like the two days that we get you know in genesis 4 yeah um so so yeah i mean kane's story ultimately for me became about how he navigates his identity and Mm -hmm. how when we we put our identities in all these things like being the firstborn, being the favorite yeah. son, being the most powerful. Those things are not where we find life. And so could it be that God rejected Cain's offering because he was trying to save Cain mm. from like putting his identity in all of these wrong things? Sure. And that's why he comes to him and says, Cain, you're at a crossroads. Like you're at a precipice. Like there's something, there's a good thing and a bad thing ahead of you. And I want you to choose the good thing. Yeah. Don't let sin control you. Yeah. 
you know, and of course we know Cain doesn't listen. Waiting right? to pounce on Yeah, him yeah, and devour you. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was just all this very strong, violent language. But then, you know, again, I think in my Southern Baptist upbringing, I would have heard, and it's just going to because you're an original sinner and, like, right. you have no hope. But God actually says, you can be its master. Yeah. Like, this does not have to have the final word in your life. And so, I mean, again, that's why Cain's story becomes a tragedy, because how many of us would love it if we were about to commit a huge sin and God actually came to us and said, hey, would you stop for a minute and think about this? Like, we all think that we, oh, well, that'd be, but but God did that with Cain, Hmm. and it didn't make any difference. Cain was so committed to this wrong view of himself, you know, that he didn't even listen to God. Right. And... There is a thread throughout your entire book, which I appreciate, and and it it begins here, and it's um, where you even say in the book, what if God isn't punishing Cain, but trying to rescue him? You know, if you do well, will you not be accepted from Genesis 4-7? And I was thinking as I read that, because really, you kind of weave that throughout your characters of your story, that behind all of these villains, there is this God of grace who is desperately reaching out to these people, and he's, and he's almost saying this again and again, like, sin's waiting for you, like, don't let it pounce on you here, don't do this. And I, I think, honestly, I think that's actually a very Jewish idea, too, because I, I've become friends fairly recently in the last year with our local rabbi in Springfield, and we were talking uh, one day over coffee about the fall story, and to Jews, they're like, there's not a fall story. It's not in the Bible. Like, we don't get what you're talking about when you talk about the fall. What it is is a story of they've grown up, they've matured, they've had to move out into this world, which is hard, and, and God is there with them, and He's and it seems like punishment, and it seems like a harsh reality, but guess what? Not only did they have to leave the childhood of Eden, which is the hardest thing in the world, and they can't stay there anymore, but God's going with them, you know, and, and so they look at what we call the fall as as a grace story, and so I see it again in this story with Cain. Again, even when he's expelled, you know, it, it's even then in the story that uh, God puts a mark on him, saying, "No one better touch him," you know, <laughs> type thing. So I appreciate that way that you weave that throughout each of these characters that we often just want to say, "Oh, they're just irredeemable," and, and God didn't care enough. They're the enemy. Um, but we we don't really see in Scripture very often, I don't think, enemies that God's ready to be done with. You know? No, and that's yeah. and that you know, I, I in in the very end of the book, I close with uh, a quote from an author friend of mine named Juliana Baggett, and she was talking about a like a YA dystopian trilogy that she's mm-hmm. written. And uh, when we interviewed her on Storyman, we were asking about because the, it's there's this one character in the first book who's like super scary and evil. But by the end of the first book, he's become like someone that you really care about. And El, start to Capitan, El Capitan. El Capitan, yeah. yeah. And uh, so we asked her about that. We we're like, how did you do that? She said, you know, when I designed him in my head before he came onto the page, he was like the boogeyman of the story. He yeah. was the ultimate bad guy. And then as I got to know him, as I was writing him, I kind of found some compassion and some sympathy for him. And so he becomes a point of view character in later books and someone that you really care about. And she, she made this statement that I think has been true for me for all of these villains. She said... Uh, when you see someone's full humanity, forgiveness is a breath away. Mm. You know, that's always stuck with me. And again, it's the same, like, just what you were just saying, right? Yeah. Like, when you actually kind of try to get to know Cain for five minutes, mm. you actually start to feel sad for him. And yeah. again, you, you're not glad he killed his brother. No. But it, his story becomes a tragedy, you know, not uh, more so than just like, a, well, yeah, what'd you expect? He's yeah. the bad guy. Yeah. So well, and I think about that too. Like in, in a couple of weeks, I'm supposed to have Shane Claiborne on the podcast, and he is always 
doing so much work with like people who are on death row and trying to get them, you know, not released necessarily, but off of death row, you know, and um, I think he's capturing some of that what we're talking about here too. It's so close to his heart, and he believes close to God heart uh, that God actually feels this empathy for them and wants them to be redeemed. You know, our enemies are brothers who've forgotten how to love to some extent, and and how that works and. Um, you, you do a, a very nice job in the book of, of weaving that through right down to the end of, of the book when, when we're talking about Jesus you know coming back and, and being in a place of judgment um, the judgment is is a redemptive thing you know the idea that um, I, I think it's what Brian Zahn would call you know what we see as, as condemnation is grace received wrongly you know <laughs> that, that we see it as something punishing but what God wants to give us is grace you know yeah. in the midst of yeah. it all yeah. um, and there's there's so many can you just real quickly off the top of your head uh, name the characters real quick that you focused on in yeah. the book because I'm trying to do it by memory like, I know I'm going to forget we start with Cain and Cain then and then Delilah okay Delilah. then Queen Jezebel right then Herod uh, with which that's the focus on the uh, killing the babies of Bethlehem. Okay. Herodias, who's the, she's definitely the least known of the villains yeah. of the book. Um, she is the one who arranged for John the Baptist to, to be beheaded. Her daughter did the dance for Herod Antipas, and he said, "You know, whatever you want to have in my right. kingdom." And then she comes to her mom and says, "What should I ask for?" Her mom says, "I had John the Baptist head on a platter." So that's how John the Baptist is killed. Uh, then is Judas, and then is Satan. Yeah. Well, let's talk... I'm, I'm going to skip over a bunch of them because I want people to read the book, but I'm going to go to the, the character that... Because you had asked me like after I finished it which, which characters stood out to you or which villains stood out the most. And honestly... Um, Obviously, Satan was was the, my favorite of all of them. I liked it in the good. last chapter. But other than that, and I I knew a lot of the stuff around Satan. I appreciated the way that you brought it out because I don't always see people. Um, bring it out the way you did and I think it's going to be very helpful to people because we are just preoccupied with Satan sometimes but the character that really kind of I knew really nothing about and I told you I was like I've just never given Herodias a second thought and you must have done first of all a lot of research into kind of finding out who Herodias was and then you you bring together this really amazing narrative about her and then this um this was the really creative part the conversation between her and John the Baptist like her coming to visit him in jail and almost being like this I, almost this adversarial role you know to him it's it's in my mind almost this Game of Thrones type you know <laughs> like, that was a, like narrative I, that's going uh, on Cersei was in the back of my mind as okay. I was writing Herodias I like was, I was really I was, she was kind of the one I was thinking of when I was reading <laughs> good, it good, good, which good. means you did a good job crafting that story but maybe for those, because I think this is a good example of of why this book will will teach you new things you didn't know. Maybe give us a little insight into the character of Herodias, because like you said, she's somebody that readers may approach this and not know anything about. Even me, as somebody who has been reading the Bible for years, and I just usually get to that part and I'm like, "Well, John's beheaded. Must move on," you know. And well, and it's all about it's yeah. all about how to fix Jesus, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, that's even even the even the synoptic gospel writers. That's mm-hmm. what that's what matters to them because that's when Jesus has to withdraw and go and like mourn, and then the crowds keep trying to follow. I mean, it's it is very much about. I mean, and again, historically speaking, it's about what happened to John's movement, sure. right? Because he and Jesus were parallel. But then again, the gospel writers very much, they are concerned with how does this impact Jesus? So it's interesting to me how little play Herodias gets. And, yeah. you know, Mark especially, Mark gives us the most information about her 
and Mark is intent to use her as Jezebel 2.0. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. if John is Elijah, he needs an arch nemesis, and Elijah's arch nemesis, where Ahab and Jezebel, well, he's got Herod Antipas and Herodias are a perfect foil. The, the problem is, it's a little more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. And so I started out with, I mean, it was, it was helpful because, you know, Herod was one of my characters, and Herod is Herodias's grandfather. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to give yourself a headache, <laughs> uh, try to draw Herodias's family tree. Yeah. Uh, if you are upset about the amount of incest and uh, how difficult and complicated the houses in Game of Thrones are, don't do anything with Herodias' family tree <laughs> because it is it is a total dumpster fire. Yeah. Everyone is named Herod something, and they're all married to each other and divorced from each other and remarried to each other. And so, yeah, I mean, Herodias was born in Rome uh, to one of Herod's sons. When she was relatively young, I couldn't figure out exactly when, but it's probably about before she was twelve. She was betrothed to, and then and then married to her uncle Herod the Second, who was at the time Herod the Great's immediate descendant, mm-hmm. or uh, sorry, uh, heir. He was the heir to the throne. So, so if if Herod the Great had died in say like I don't know twenty BC, mm-hmm. uh, then Herod the Second and Herodias would have taken over as the king and queen of Israel. Okay. So she had a pretty good deal. Yeah. Then, one of Herod's other wives conspired with one of Herod's other sons and Herod II's mother to kill Herod. Herod found out about the plot, had them all executed, and then even though Herod II, who was Herodias' husband, didn't have anything to do with the plot because his mom did, Herod removed him from the line of succession. So Herodias went from being the crown princess of Israel to just, like, now married to a guy who was never going to go anywhere, do anything, have anything to do with it. So I'm probably a pretty bitter person. Right. Or, I mean, at least, like, yeah, at least, like, disappointed, right? And she, the other thing that's fascinating is that she grew up in the household of Caesar Augustus. Hmm. Uh, because Herod was friends with Augustus, and Herod's sons, including Herodias's father, had been educated in Rome, uh, in, in her house. And Augustus was married to Octav- or Olivia Drusilla, um, who was, uh, basically, she never did all the things a good, noble Roman woman should do. Mm-hmm. She owned property, she conducted business, like, she was very much uh, Augustus's right-hand person. And it, it actually, you can see after Augustus dies, and people can say things without him <laughs> taking revenge on yeah. them, you can see all of these Roman senators come out and they start critiquing his wife for how she's acting too mannish, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I, again, I wondered, what does a smart, intelligent, crafty woman who's raised by, like, the ultimate manipulator, Herod the Great... What happens when she sees a powerful woman who manipulates things and does what she wants and isn't constrained to the gender roles of her day? Well, it's not out of the question that she would say, well, I don't have to just stay married to this, like, loser, you know, used-to-be prince. So she, we know, historically, she divorces Herod II, and she convinces Herod Antipas, who is, at that point now, the Tetrarch of Galilee... So he's not quite king, but he's almost king, right? Right. Um, to divorce his wife, which he had 
made a political marriage to a Nabataean queen, which they were a neighboring country that was often having problems with Israel. So Antipas had married to try to calm those waters. Herodias convinces him to divorce her, and they marry each other. And so John the Baptizer has come on the scene. He's calling Israel to repent, and the, the king and the queen, well, the tetrarch, and the, the rulers of the region where he's doing his ministry have both divorced their spouses for no reason that they had any sort of uh, religious grounds for and married each other. And so he goes around telling everyone that they're an abomination and that their marriage is an abomination and they're bringing God's judgment on their people and and that the Messiah is coming and that they better repent. And Herodias hates him. And I, I speculated... And this is where this is where the, the fiction was fun, right? Because you kind of yeah. have like history only takes you so far. Herodias sure. never wrote anything down, but I speculated that the reason she hated him was because he was endangering her political standing, hmm. right? And and I, I wondered if it had something to do with her daughter, like again that she wants her daughter to be in a better position than she was ever in, not to be passed around from man to man based on who's getting a political alliance. We know that her daughter Salome ended up married to Herod Philip, who was the tetrarch of the other half of the northern part of the country. Uh, And so I wondered if... This this is the other thing. The Herods were all actually Jewish. Hmm. Um, they They weren't as religious as John the Baptizer. But Herod Antipas, in particular, yeah. Scripture tells us that the reason he won't kill John is because he knows John's a prophet from God. Right. Right. I mean, so, so like they they, are... they have you know, and that's in the fiction. That's one of the things I have Herodias do is she 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 says, "I know you want me to be your Jezebel, mm-hmm. but I'm not an idolater. Like yeah. I, you know, like I I am a Jew just like <laughs> you, and like yeah. we see God a little differently." But I'm not going to play the role you want me to play, you know, yeah. kind of. And I, there was a fun bit where she starts quoting scripture at him. Yeah. And he's just kind of like surprised. And she's yeah. like, yeah, like that's what I'm saying, man. Like I know how to, like yeah. I know this stuff. I believe too. Because yeah. again, I thought, well, yeah, like that's what we know about the, Herod's whole clan is that they they would have been in synagogue. They would have known scripture. They, these yeah. things would have formed their moral imagination. And so it's like when the apologist is already with his arguments and the other guy already knows it. Right. Like, right. right. <laughs> and, and again, I wonder like, what does that do to John? Right. Because yeah. that's, I think that's what we so often do is we assume I'm good, which means you must be bad. Yeah. You know, if I'm on God's side, you must be anti God. And like, what happens if she's like, no, I'm on God's side too. Yeah. You know? And yeah. then what does that do to the com- conversation? Yeah. <laughs> Cause I think that's much more, that, the, that's much more reflective of life, right? The, the Nazis had God with us on their uniforms, right? Too, right, you know? right. So, so, which ones were not Christians? <laughs> yes, and that's that's to me yeah. such such a more interesting. Mm. Again, because at the end of the day, I'm not trying to apologize for her. It right. is not trying to say that John deserved to die or any of those things. I'm yeah. just trying to say like it's a lot more complicated when you realize that she was yeah. human. You know, not just oh, not just definitely. a not just a Jezebel cutout. That yeah. And, and there's just for sake of time, I want to move on a little bit Great. from Herodias too. But um, and we unfortunately we're not gonna have time to get into all the characters today. But there's one character that I, I actually messaged you about as well. Um, that I I love the way that you portray her. Not a villain actually in the story, um, but the woman who anointed yes. Jesus' feet. And I had been thinking a lot about her anyway because I had recently preached a sermon out of uh, that passage in Matthew. Um, But it was like an insight, and it wasn't necessarily something you said explicitly, but it like came to me reading your book and talking about when she came to anoint Jesus' feet as though it were for burial. 
and I thought, oh, could she be a prophet? Like in the story, like I, I, I've never thought of her in that light, but she seems to have this prophetic role. And when we lead into Judas, who is seemingly so upset that 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 could have been sold and given to the poor, you know, which is we still do that, don't we? Constantly, <laughs> we're like, I can't believe you're building that nice church. We could have given that money to the poor. It's like, all right, were well, you going to write the check? Yeah, yeah, you know, right, like, yeah. yeah. So, um, but you you really wrote about her in a really beautiful way and I it just like I had to stop for a second and just think about it like wow I wonder if she's intended to sort of fill this almost role of a prophetess you know because we're, we're coming in and, and she comes in and she's and I love that she has no name in the story but then you know Jesus says the poor you will always have with you and she's always remembered even though we don't know her name which is yeah. a, a pretty powerful thing but we get into Judas who is is less noble, you know, in this character. <laughs> we, we could say that for sure. And we could spend a lot of time talking about all your characters, but I, I think I want to take it down to some of the more practicalities. Because we, we get into Judas, and there's a lot of great material in that story. And we get into the accuser at the end, which I love. That whole final part of the book is just, it's, it's powerful. It's really good stuff. Um, but honestly, it made me think of, of real-world scenarios when I'm reading this book. All the people that, and I'm going to say that I villainize, okay, because I do it all the time. I get frustrated with Trump like crazy and all those people and the statements that they make. And I, the easiest thing in the world for me to do is just be like, well, just, you know, blah, 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 let's just say bad things about him. But things changed for me a while back when I watched a documentary about his life. Or it was one that was frontline. They did one on Hillary. They didn't. Yeah, one on right, right. And it just humanized their story. It didn't really make me support them or anything. But it was the essence of what you're trying to do with these villains in this book. It creates an empathy there. I started, you know, and I started seeing him more as like this guy is just dying for love from his father. Like that's you could sum up his life in this. Like he's somebody who never got love and acceptance and warmth from anybody, so his life became all about himself and he's still trying to win daddy's approval. And there's a sense in which I get that from the characters that you're writing about, you know, in these stories here. But let's talk a, a minute cuz I mean again, fill in the blank with people. You could just do it with anybody. It made me stop and have a moment of repentance again when I'm looking like, God, help me, please, to have empathy on these people that I so quickly want to cast stones against. But let's talk about the accuser for a minute. Great. Uh, maybe we can kind of wrap up our conversation with that because Judas just kind of leads us in there with that story. Um, I wouldn't say it's exactly like a history of Satan or anything, but it, it, it kind of is. <laughs> kind of, yeah. It kind of is yeah. in the way that it does. And, uh, and the way that you have the narrative kind of intertwined it's it's all it's almost it almost is a history in some ways because you're kind of going through like the old testament roots of the word and where we have and they don't really have a concept like we do of the devil or anything but we actually see this satan character as an agent of god and and what jesus does through his death you bring out in the book so well it's like the accuser doesn't have a role anymore. <laughs> you know? Doesn't have a place with God anymore because the accusations are over. You know, Jesus has done something new on the cross. And so this accuser character that we uh, so often, and you t say in the book, the whole name of the book, Empathy for the Devil, <laughs> if we could even in some ways empathize with that one that we see as the very worst in all of us, um, then maybe it can help us be the grace of God truly yeah. in the world to change them. Um, were there 
I mean, you've probably studied a lot before. Were there any new insights when you were looking into the characters of Satan that just kind of, like, you went like, oh, wow, this is, like, for you when you were writing it? Yeah, so, kind of so I think the biggest, the biggest, like, aha moment for me was that the word devil, which means uh, deceiver, mm-hmm. is it doesn't appear in our scriptures until the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And the New Testament was all written after Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven, right? Mm-hmm. All of it. So, so it's all, even when it's telling stories of before the ascension, yeah. it's also being written from the perspective after the ascension. And I thought it was, uh, the big aha moment for me was that before Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven, the accuser only spoke truth. Hmm. You know, he accused us, and it was rightfully yeah. rightful condemnation. Right? We were sinners. But then, and this is this is this is the book of Revelation, right? Revelation twelve. Once Jesus ascends to heaven, and there's the war in heaven, and he is cast down, mm-hmm. um, there is now no room for him in heaven. There is no need for accusation because of what Christ did on the cross. And so now, what he does is deceive us. He lies to us. He he becomes the devil. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, I mean, I've talked about this a, a lot with with people at my church and who have been concerned about um, you know demonic demonic stuff and and just like say what Satan does in their lives. And what I always remind them is all because we are in Christ. The only thing that Satan can do is deceive us, is lie to us. Mm-hmm. And again, that that that's there's some insidious ways in the Book of Revelation. It's about emperor, emperor worship, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's the the way. The way that the devil wages war on the churches of Asia Minor is through through Rome and through getting people to worship Rome alongside God, uh, and and so that's deceptive and that's insidious. But but that's it. It's like it's all lies. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think too being in a church, you know, our, we say our church is for people that don't like church and all that kind of stuff. So we get a lot of folks that. They've only ever known condemnation from people of God. Yeah. They've only ever known that kind of stuff. And so they, they carry around deep shame and deep sense of guilt. And being able to say to them, like, all those things are lies. Like, all mm-hmm. those things are bullcrap because Jesus took care of all of that on the cross. Yeah. And and God does not hold any of that against you. And God does not bear any of that against you. Now, you are free. Yeah. Um, and and, and any time you think, I'm unworthy, no one could love me, any of that kind of, that is demonic lies. Right. And and anytime someone tells you those things, right. that is satanic. Like, that's satanic. And I have right up here a quote from you in the book, Christians who refuse to extend God's grace to the world around them are truly satanic. Yeah, that was a big insight for me. Yeah. That that what is satanic is not heavy metal music, right. and or even even like uh, even like pride, right? I mean, because that was uh, that kind of like that old yeah. Lucifer myth that we all carry around is that he he wanted to take over and rule heaven because yeah. I don't know why, just because you know stuff that's not even in the Bible, <laughs> right, but, right, yeah, right, 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 right. But you um, think it is, yeah. and so we say like pride is satanic. Which again, I'm not saying pride's not satanic, but like this idea that no, when it's when it's when we draw a fence around the gospel. When we decide that there are some people that don't deserve this, right. like that's the satanic movement. Well, maybe a, a great example of that is like Luther, as he was in his crazy days at the end of his life, yeah. you know, and he's writing all these works about, in essence, what happened to the Jews in the Holocaust. He's prescribing, let's do that to the Jews, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and that's a really strong way of like an example of this is what happens when good Christians go bad, you yeah. know, <laughs> type yeah. thing. Yeah. When we stop extending grace, we become 
uh, we become the enemy. Yeah. What is it they say about if you live long enough? To, to, it was the to, Batman quote, right? You yeah, either die like, a hero, yeah, yeah, die a hero, or, <laughs> or, or live long, long enough to see yourself become the enemy. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. is what it is. So it's, it's funny how we always get back to Batman. It all comes back. It all comes back to Batman. <laughs> <laughs> Some way or another. So which which may, you know the sequel you could just do comic book films. There we go. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Good thing right. for them. That'd yeah. Be, uh, who, who doesn't want to dive into the Joker, which we know nothing about his past. Right. Yet. Right. Well. Um, well, I, I really love that part of the book, and it was towards the end too, where you got to talk about where you're currently serving at Catalyst, and um, just telling some of the stories about the people there. And you you have a really um, you have a talent for making connections through stories that are sometimes stories that m- might feel dead to us sometimes, just on the page. And I think you have a really uh, a gift for crafting a narrative around those things that make them come alive for us. Thank you. And so I really feel like you did a great job with that. And and I I meant what I said before. I wasn't just saying that just because you're in the room. There, it, there were parts of it that did make me pause for moments like, I need to pray about this, I think. You know, I, I mean, great, good, yeah. And, and yeah. I'm sure that's what you were hoping yeah. for. Yeah, ultimately, um, this isn't just like an intellectual exercise, right? Yeah, right. Like, ultimately, my ho- and I say this in the conclusion of the book, I say, we need to learn to practice empathy. Yeah. Like, we need to learn not to rush to judgment. We yeah. need to learn, um, particularly in our political climate, yeah. particularly with the conversations about race. Like, Well, and or, or you know, Nazis are in the news, you know? Yeah, I mean, who would have thought? Do, how do we start to empathize with, I mean, like, mm-hmm. that's unthinkable. How mm-hmm. do we do that? And yet, in some ways, until we can do that, we don't know how to extend but, but grace. Here, you know? just real quickly on that issue, right? Um, I say real quick, and I take a big pause. Uh, <laughs> so, so what's underneath those guys marching in Charleston right. is fear. They're afraid of mm-hmm. the new world that is sure. emerging, and if if we can't understand that, and again, certainly not condone it, mm-hmm. certainly not agree with it, certainly not apologize for it. No, but just understand yeah. that that behind all of the bluster. They're afraid. Mm-hmm. Then we're gonna be we're gonna miss we're gonna miss everything. We're actually just gonna make them more afraid. Yeah. We're gonna convince them that what they're doing is the right course of action. And I, and I wish I could remember the um, the person who I heard years ago on the radio who was a former neo Nazi that became a Christian oh. and told the story. I can't remember the name of this person or what ministry he was with, but something that really is very much like the characters in your story. He said, I didn't really care about the whole racist thing. He said, I didn't care about that. Um, he said, I was kind of an outcast in my school, and I liked to skateboard. Um, and he said, I just found this group of people that accepted me, and they kind of became a family for me. My home life wasn't very good. Um, and they were there for me on everything. And they created community for me, and they loved me. And all the other stuff just kind of came along with it. And I learned to hate because that was part of, like, what the community did. And and thankfully he had this powerful story of, you know, Christ converting him from that. And so now he tells the story and tries to do the opposite. But I think we see a lot of that in the villains in your book. And one of the greatest tragedies that I I think in all of Scripture is is Judas, you know, and and the way you you write about him. And, And I just had a conversation with Pastor Bob on our previous podcast and we were saying you know isn't it interesting that um judas is the one that goes and hangs himself because he can't deal with the guilt what jesus does is still welcome him to the table like he's 
still there saying, you know, I break this bread and you're still part of this body. Judas, you don't have to do this, you know? <laughs> well, and I don't know when this episode is going to air, but I have some deleted scenes mm. and that, I, that I'm going to put on my blog uh, leading up to the launch of the book. Nice. And one of the scenes, I, it's actually not deleted because I, I wrote it afterwards, but I asked, the, and I asked this question in the nonfiction section for Judas, like, what if he hadn't hanged himself? Yeah. You know, and so I actually, I actually have a scene. It's, it's a reimagining of John, or it's a, I guess it's an alternate history, which I love alternate history, but of John 20, where Jesus is making breakfast on the beach, or John 21, I guess, and he, he confronts Peter. He says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Yeah. And Peter realizes it's because he denied him three times, and now Jesus yeah. is, and it's this, it's this incredibly gracious, kind, loving way to confront Peter's sin, to acknowledge it, not to sweep it under the rug, not to pretend it didn't happen, but then to offer him love and restoration of relationship. And so I have, what if, it's an alternate history that what if Judas, like, I think I actually have the rope break or something. Somehow his suicide doesn't go through. Doesn't take. And so he ends up on that beach too, and he witnesses this confrontation with Peter, and then Jesus comes over, and of course Jesus is going to give him a kiss of welcome, right? Because that's how Judas betrayed you know, his wasn't a threefold denial. His was this kiss of betrayal. And so, yeah. like, why not? Like, why would, of course Jesus would have done that. Sure. Right? Uh, Judas isn't damned because of what God did. Mm. He, like, as you said, like, yeah. he gave up. Like, he was overcome and he couldn't wait for the resurrection. Yeah. And so, yeah, I have this, I, I, th- I think it's a beautiful moment yeah. where Judas becomes the patron saint of all the guys that, Got God wrong, you know. Yeah. Um, I, well, that'll be that'll be fun to read. Tell everybody your website so they'll know where. Yeah, to find so uh, I blog at NorvalRogers.com. That's Shaggy from Scooby Doo's real name. Right. Um, so <laughs> if, you, if you can't figure out how to spell it, just Google that. Um, but you know, my weekly newsletter is stuff you'll probably like because uh, I don't know, maybe you won't like it. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, if you go know. there, I put everything that I create every week. Is that's one of the sections there. So in the time of recording this, you just released the first two chapters of the book. That's right through there. So go to NorvalRogers.com and sign up so you can you know get yeah. a preview of the book and everything. Or you can go to stuff you'll probably like dot com. That's I just it's it's just a dummy URL that points you to the sign up page. Sure. But I figured that was the easiest way. Perfect. Yeah. So Perfect. yeah, you can get that. You can get all the cane material and get a kind of a taste of what the book's going to be like. Yeah. Well, as you can tell. Uh, most of you listening have probably heard Jr. before, but if you haven't, as you can tell, Jr. has a lot of knowledge. And every time I, I read you or when I listen to you on the Storyman podcast, I'm, I, I'm always like, why didn't I think of that? You know, like, you, you do have such Thank really you. good insights. Um, and, and you do it all. You do movie reviews. I mean, you do every book now and reviews again. every now and then. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's part of the fun of your, your email that you give out every Friday because you give little glimpses and like, here's a movie I've, I've seen. Or, and sometimes it's an old movie or something that I, you've brought back about or a book that you're into right now and uh, devotional thoughts. So I, I'd encourage everybody to, to sign up for your email list too. Oh, I get you. it and I enjoy it. Um, there's obviously we've we've not even begun to scratch the surface of what you've written about, but uh, every now and then when I have an author on, I like to have them read a small passage of of their book, and I've got this. It's it's really like a two sentences is all it Great. is, and it's from the close of your book. But I think I, it sums it up. Well, I wonder if you would mind reading that. Here's the author in his own words reading his words. So. As we learn to see the villains lurking within ourselves, may the spirit breathe new life into us. As we become whole, may we become a people able to love even the devils we meet and to find them transformed into friends by that love. J.R. Foresteros is the guest today. His new book is Empathy for the Devil. J.R., thank you for being one of the voices in my head this week. 
Thank you for joining me here this week on the Voices in My Head podcast. I hope you'll visit me on my website at rickleyjames.com. Follow me on Twitter at rickleyjames. Like my artist page on Facebook at facebook.com slash rickleyjames. And keep up to date on what I'm writing at my author page on amazon.com. Make sure to follow my calendar on the website, and if you would like to have me come to your town to do a concert, a speaking engagement, or a book event, you can book me through my website by clicking on the link for Pair Booking Agency. That's P-A-R-E Booking. And finally, it would mean the world to me if you were to leave me a review of this podcast on iTunes. The more positive reviews that we receive, the more visible this podcast is on the internet. And now the benediction. May the God of peace who raised Christ from the dead strengthen your inner being for every good work. And may the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit rest upon you and dwell within you this day and forevermore. Amen.